0: Hello, and welcome to the 136th episode of the Not Your Mama's Gamer podcast, a podcast where we talk about games and gaming from a feminist perspective. My name is Samantha Blackman, and I am an associate professor here at Purdue University in wonderful West Lafayette, Indiana, where I talk about, read about, write about, dream about, amongst other things, video games, video games, video games. So we are joined tonight um, by a special guest, Tommy Godwin. Hi, Tommy. Hi, everyone. Yay! <laughs> Yay! Um. Whoa, whoa. So I'll tell you a little bit about Tommy, and she can tell us more. Um, Tommy is a veteran. She was an officer, a sentinel, and a woman deployed in Iraq in two thousand and five, two thousand and six. Um, she blogged during her deployment, and and at the time I was following it along, and uh, for a bit afterwards, and it was fucking amazing. Um, right now, Tommy works at the Washington County, uh, Minnesota Department of Public Health and Environment, where she does assessment and evaluation for public health, um, and she's an all around badass. But tell me what <laughs> other than being a badass and all of these other wonderful things, can you tell us a bit more about yourself? Sure.
1: Um, I think, you know, the, the job thing has ended up being a big piece of my life. So I think you nailed it. I, I work on assessment planning and evaluation projects, and it's a county health department. So we serve 250,000 people. And I get to do a lot of internal and external collaboration, which feels like a really good fit for what I'm interested in. Mm -hmm. Um, I do some consulting with community organizations through my paid job um, where um, For example, one of the projects is working with community orgs to reduce stigma toward mental illness. Um, And we do that by like structuring the initiatives that they take on their messaging and how they evaluate success. Um, in my play life, my personal life, I do, um, some cycling, and I am a very failed gardener, but occasionally I try at that, too.
2: (laughs) I'm the worst gardener, and I try every year. (laughs) Same. Oh my god, I've grown and killed so many things, and the things that survive, the fruit and the vegetables just die on the plant, (laughs) it's awful, but I love it. yeah, I love it. exactly. Hands in dirt. Very. My partner documented. is a really
3: good gardener, but I am shit at it. Garbage.
1: <laughs> okay. Yeah.
0: You will all starve to death during the zombie apocalypse.
3: <laughs> <laughs> no, because I married a good gardener. I'm going to be okay.
0: <laughs> so, in addition to Tommy, we're joined tonight by three of our regular... Um, going from my left to right, we've got Alex Lane. Hello, Alex, who are you? Hello,
2: I'm Alex Lane. I'm an assistant professor at Metropolitan State University. I have three dogs, one of which is in heat right now, so um, you'll uh, you'll only hear out of me when I'm talking, and you're not going to see my video because it's like Hugh Hefner's mansion up in here right now. So. Um, <laughs> Let's see what else. Um, I'm really excited because uh, in five days I get to leave on my uh, Fabulous Girls Disc Golf weekend, which was started last year in the midst of some crazy stuff that was happening to me at work. And uh, four of us, and now five of us, uh, just disappear into the Wisconsin woods for five days and play Frisbee golf. So I couldn't be looking more forward to that, particularly because I'm in charge of the food, so I'm very excited. Ooh, the question is, so is
0: everybody else excited about eating your food?
2: <laughs> I've been testing recipes, bringing them uh, samples to our meetings. Like, they are all about it. Like, cool. I, I've, I'm bringing it. I have learned skills from you. I've learned skills from everybody. I, I'm bringing it. I'm ready. And also, I play video games. <laughs> I just want to say that it sounded
3: like you said disco
2: weekend. Uh, we <laughs> were
3: gonna go play frisbee. I was like to disco, um, frisbee disco. Don't you know
0: That you said golf. Yeah, disco, disco. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's cool. disco frisbee. All Ooh. right. Next up on uh, to my other, my left still is Alicia Carabenes. Hello, Alicia Carabenes. Well, you don't have to say my name like that. <laughs>
3: My name, my name is Alicia Carabinas. Normal people say it um, Sam makes fun of me For being southern mm-hmm. I am a PhD student at Purdue uh, And try to get rid of that southern accent right now <laughs> A little bit And, uh, and, and I, I don't know I belong to Sam Sam owns me um, I'm her lady servant I don't know uh, But also I study video games when she lets me
0: well,
3: yeah, and I have a cough right now, so I'll probably be muted some too. I'm sorry. Not as exciting as Alex is muting.
0: Less exciting.
2: Exciting, disgusting, whatever.
0: All the things. All the things. Next up, we have Keshana Gray. Hello, Keshana. Tell us about yourself. Hello, hello. I am Keshana Gray. I am currently a visiting scholar at MIT uh, for the year. Uh, founder of the Critical. Uh, yeah, you media. are. <laughs> Founder of the Critical Gaming Lab and uh they let they have kept me in my absences and hiatuses. They did not kick me off the team and I love them for it. Thank y'all. It ain't too late. All right. <laughs> Dang <laughs> I can't say it to say. So I'm, kidding. Kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. All right, so we're gonna jump in, and we'll start with our usual: what you're playing, what you're reading, what you're drinking—all very important things. Um, and because we like to pretend we have manners around here, yeah, um, no manners, none whatsoever, and it'll probably last through the first question. We're gonna start with Tommy, and uh, say, Tommy, what have you been playing lately? Oh, we talked about this last night. I'm so embarrassed, but um, I've been playing a lot of Pac-Man, just
1: compulsively pac-man (laughs)
0: pac-man i don't have a whole lot more to say about that (laughs) pac-man is good classic (laughs) well you know what the funny thing is is that she's like i've been playing a lot of pac-man just i was like you know what the funny thing was i downloaded like the um like the classic games bundle on xbox one that was like pac-man dig dug and galaga so i played a whole lot of pac-man and galaga in the last week Yep.
2: The first rule in my video game classes is that you never get to laugh or make fun of anybody for the games they choose because yeah. that's how innovation gets stifled, and that's how yeah. we are exclusionary, so.
0: Woo, Pac-Man. Exactly. Awesome. Absolutely. Exactly. We were playing a lot of pac I, I pulled out my original Game Boy for P to play Pac-Man, and she was just like, she was like, how did you live? <laughs> she was like, no color. <laughs> that, original, that was legit. That was
2: yeah, and that was like some middle upper class shit at the time. (laughs) True
1: story. You had to
2: borrow. Yeah, like I had to borrow Game Boy. I don't
1: think I actually owned one until it it wasn't cool to own
2: one. It had like a foot and a half cord, so you had to sit right next to the wall.
0: (laughs) Yeah, if you were plugged in, you did. Oh yeah, yeah. And she was like, she's like, I, I don't understand how you lived. I don't understand. But she played it, and she was like, and when the, and when I was like, okay, it's time to go to bed. She's like, can I play that again tomorrow? Uh, so she was kind of hooked. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, it, it looks weird to them, but they get it. Cause I know like, uh-huh. my kids had issues with it, but they they like they play Sonic now. They like Sonic. So mm-hmm. I'm working my way back slowly. So we're at my, Sega.
3: <laughs> yeah, my kid is completely obsessed with Donkey Kong of all the things. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
0: Donkey a, Kong. You cool. know what? Donkey really? Kong was a love or hate game. You either loved well, it out of a, that apparently game, or you, you felt nothing camp. to do with it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. So, but me and in, in, in addition to like Pac Man and Galaga, um, and I and I started playing Galaga one night, and I played for like three hours. I was like, oh, I remember how much I used to love this game. Um, but that's a whole other story. I also <laughs> played um, Earthlock which is a, it's a new kind of indie RPG game that uh, was uh, free on Xbox Live this month. Mm-hmm. Um, and I and I downloaded it and I played it because I was like, I, you know, I'm trying to find gap fillers between like now and the release of Nino Kuni 2 for my kid. Um, and it's hard because she likes JRPGs, but so many RPGs are so kind of, have such mature themes that they're not okay for her to play. Yeah. Um, But this one looked okay, uh, but there's no voice acting whatsoever. And, you know, it's fine. I was like, you know, it's fine if there's, like, not, it's not all voice acted. She can read. But she's not going to play very long if she has to read the entire thing. Because, you know, she's eight. She's going to be like, you know what, nope, I'm out. Um, So uh, she and I, we play, we play a couple of them together. So we would take turns reading screens. Um, and then when she got tired, I would read screens. But you know what? To be perfectly honest, I really wanted the game to be really good. It's not that great. It's got some really cute characters in there, including um, a hog bunny named <laughs> 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 Um, Who P automatically said, I don't like that name, so I'm going to call him Poochie. <laughs> um, so Gnark became Poochie, um, we had to substitute Bernard, we had to substitute Poochie for Gnark every time his name came up. Um, so, yeah, Earthlock, uh, and then I, I think I talked about it in the last po- podcast, but I played, um, quite a bit of hack slash backstab, mm-hmm. um, uh, and then I took it to class and <laughs> I took it to class in our games in UX class and we made everybody play hack slash backstab a lot last week. Um, so that's been a lot of fun. Um, the game, the oddly enough, is not the greatest game in the world, but just watching four people try to play cooperatively and make their way uh, through a dungeon, fight a boss, and then go through a gateway when only one person can go through that gateway was hilarious. And Alicia, were you in that group? Were you in the mega group that played for like 30 minutes because they were lost? Yes. No. Okay. <laughs> so, so here's the thing there the, the, is it's one level, right? It's one, it's one level. You can typically make it through that level in five minutes tops. You fight through three or four rooms, you find the boss, you kill the boss, and then you go to another room, and there is the portal, um, and you go to this, like, little podium, and everybody heals. The portal opens, and then only one person can make it through, so you have to somehow be that only person to make it through, right? So nobody typically played longer than five minutes. Five, that's it. We had one group. That for the love of all that is holy and every bit of bad direction that they had, (laughs) they were stuck on that one level for like 30 minutes. They really were. So while everybody else had like 100 kills, this group had anywhere, for the four people, from 700 to 1,000 kills. Because they had to keep killing the the mobs that respawned because they could not find their way out. (laughs) It was horrible. So, you know, if you ever feel like you are lost in a game, just know that there's somebody worse than you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to
3: yep. <laughs> play that this podcast in class. You are not.
0: <laughs> yes. Yes.
3: <laughs> I was just joking. It's happening. I'm not playing that
0: part. Of course you not <laughs> All right, so we'll jump forward and say, Alex, what you playing?
2: Um, mine's pretty boring this week. Actually, it's all games we've talked about before. Um, Overcooked, I I love that game. It's an incredibly difficult game. Um, brutal. It's super brutal, and I'm playing it with other adults. Like I, you can't play it with a kid, really. Um, well, I do. And, but I get so for I played it with, like, a 12-year-old, or I don't know how old Ken's is. I don't know, 12, 10. I get so frustrated. Um, and then I try to play it by myself, but you can't... Like, it what bothers me about the game is that you can't do perfect on it. Like, it's impossible. Maybe with four people all working together, I don't know. But with two people, three people, it's impossible to get perfect. And that drives me nuts, because that's how I want to do with those games. I want to fill every order, blah, blah, blah. So it's annoying. Um... I've been playing uh, Clash Royale pretty obsessively, consistently. Um, it's a phone game, pretty fun. And I've been playing. I played a. a we, Mike and I played a quite a bit of Seven Days to Die, the PS4 couch co-op edition. Um, Alicia, did you end up buying that?
3: Uh, yeah, we bought it, but I have actually not had a chance to play it. Terry's been playing it and uh, seems to like it. Okay, but we've both been really busy this semester. Yeah, so I think okay's
2: I think okay's a really good word for it. Like I think it's, it's fine. still alpha or early access, right? I, I I don't know maybe, but like the thing that bothers me about the game is that it's uh so so it's roguelike ish, right? You die, you die. Your pack falls down and you can go pick it back up if you happen to find it, but you're not going to find it. And um when you start they give you no direction on what to do so it's like you need to make an axe out of wood stone and plant fibers but they don't tell you how to find it which is totally fine because there's wood stone and plant fibers laying all over but you can't pick up the wood that's on the ground and so we (sighs) played for like an hour trying to figure out what to do and finally i looked it up and it turns out you have to punch a tree Like, that's like if you're gonna make a rogue, like where people have to intuit, like what you're supposed to do next, you need to make it intuitive, right? Well, this is a really good point, though, I think. Yeah. If I may.
3: Because that's what they do in Minecraft and in Arc, and I think in Rust. You have to go up and punch the stuff. It's not intuitive, but it's kind of become the expectation. So it's like this really bad design thing has now become the
2: expected way to design games, which is really stupid.
0: So so we're gonna have kids growing up going outside punching damn trees.
2: <laughs> well, I mean I think I think that's that's probably makes sense. I mean I played a little bit of rust and I definitely didn't play notches, whatever you call that. So <laughs> I I didn't know and didn't get it. So I guess that was like a language to keep me out, you know, I guess. Yeah.
3: Yeah, because so. it doesn't make any sense, but they just keep
2: repeating the same mechanic. I mean, like the there's games, wood all over the ground. It's really annoying. Yeah. If, if it's on the ground, you should be able to pick it up. That's silly. I think so too. I think so too. But that's all I've been uh, I played some more Life is Strange. I played it with my game writing class and they really didn't like it. <laughs> they were like stilted dialogue, terrible voice acting. I was like, you guys are being a little harsh, but oh, it gets better at the end, I think. I think episode three. Yeah. It gets better. Maybe. But that's all I've been doing.
0: Cool. Well, Alicia, since you, you what have you been playing, darling? Well, I was playing
2: hackslash
3: backstab with y'all and hearthstone of course i don't have hearthstone open on my computer right now or anything at all Mm -hmm. um and uh then hate playing some day six mankind divided (laughs) yes which is yes which is not very good it's just it's boring like you know i went in all fired up and ready to be like mad because this game you know appropriating black lives matter and it's like pretty racist and oh my god it's like white dude marginalization porn and all this shit but most, most spend a whole lot of time in vents like there were some people joking um, either on Facebook or Twitter or something that it was like <laughs> an HVAC simulator because you spend so much time in air ducts so basically it's like this is what it would be like if you had to go around and fix this stuff all day long you just creep around <laughs> at them air ducts that's the game that makes sense yeah, it's super boring. The there's, I have no investment in any of the characters. I don't care what happens to anyone. There was one little side quest that I cared about a little bit, but I don't like the main guy. Uh, the world is pretty, but it's super repetitive, and the combat is not very good, and the sneaking is bad, and the mechanics are bad, and I just keep thinking about every game I've played in the last couple of years that's so much better made than this one, and it makes me wonder why the hell this exists. <laughs> I mean honestly I just don't like
0: it. Well, yeah. Well, the game itself was horrible. Oh, well. Yep. That's all I have to say about that. It's, awesome. it's... <laughs> What about you, Kashana? What you been playing, darling? Absolutely nothing. Did her her internet go out again? Uh-oh, yeah, she might be out. Well, if she comes back, we'll ask her again what she's been playing.
2: It's um, for kids, you never know.
0: <laughs> kids will kill you, I'm telling you. Um well, what about reading? What have folks been reading? Tommy, you been reading anything interesting? Um, yeah, actually, a few different things. Um,
1: I I uh, contributed to the. There's a graphic novel project called Black. Are you guys familiar with that? Mm-hmm. So, um, it was on Kickstarter, and you can still find it through that link, or I can send you a follow-up. I don't, I'm don't. i not going to be able to do that from my phone right now, but it's, um, it's a story about, the yeah, idea is what if um, only black people have superpowers, but it's, it's based on, it's a timely piece, so it was developed within the last, you know, 6 to 12 months, around um there's always for superhero stories there's always a moment where something traumatic happens and then a superhero is born out of that trauma so like the yeah. spider bite for spider man you know that kind of thing Ooh. Yeah. the traumatic event in the series is is um police violence uh, and it's it's brutal i mean it's incredible it's very well illustrated it's compelling it's um really it's elegant you know in, in its simplicity so um they just released chapter one to backers and
0: i'm pretty sure it'll be hitting like regular retail shelves by the end of this month i want that right. i was gonna say I, I need that in my face yeah. right now so i could read it yeah <laughs> yeah, I'm to find that. yeah yeah it's it's a great concept
1: and i'm i'm you know for obvious reasons it's just really timely Um, And then the other piece, um, I'm reading some more, like, actual, I read a lot of uh, nonfiction stuff. So I'm reading Joy of Happiness, which is kind of a book. Uh, It's a great practical language coaching book, and uh, with some biographical tidbits about the author. It's uh, written by a Tibetan Buddhist who's a lot more contemporary in his views, so it merges, like, the brain science of neural pathways a little bit with um, best practice for mindfulness, and then I'm reading a, a audio book. It's about um, it's a historic piece around the Olympic rowing team from 1936, and um, it's it's full of white people, of course. But what I love about it is actually the uh, the historic con- context around what was happening with fascist uprising of nationalism and fascism at that time in the world, particularly and Italy being some epicenters of that kind of behavior, um, it's just really well documented. But I, I realize it's um, it's it, it's very it's pretty detailed. Uh, I think it's like 14 hours of audio content. So good
0: stuff. Cool. Um, well, I know, uh, well, I'll, I'll jump for a second, um, and I'll, I'll wait, i I'll wait till we get to Alicia, cause I think she and I are reading the same thing this week. Um, what about you, Alex? What you reading, Don? Uh, nothing new, really.
2: Um, sorry, I have, uh, some food in my mouth as well. But, uh, I, I, I think the last time I talked about the books I'm teaching in my classes, mm-hmm. and I've just basically been reading those, so nothing new for me. All right, boring. I know.
0: Yeah, well, you you're always reading fun like true crime stuff. <laughs> Ooh,
2: that is true. That is true. I'm reading a little bit of some cr- true crime. Um, I'm reading about the uh, the biggest murder cases in Minnesota right now. But, um, it, they're a little creepy, and then also about the biggest disappearances because we have Lake Superior, right? So we have some huge, like, hundreds of people disappearing on these ships that they've never found. And Lake Superior is a finite space, right? They should be able to find this ship where hundreds of people disappear.
0: Not alien to them.
2: But they didn't. So anyway, I'm, <laughs> I, I guess I am reading about that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Alright, Alicia. Uh, oh. we'll see.
3: Yeah, you're right. We're reading the same thing. You want to talk
0: about it? Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> sure I will talk about it um, so one of the books uh, that we were reading for class or was an option for the grad students to read for class um, is uh, Catherine Isbister's new book How Games Move Us Emotion by Design um, which I think is especially interesting to me because it talks about um, how and why um, we become so immersed uh, in games and it helps for me it helps me think about um, why content in games like narrative content is so important um, because if we're going to be immersed in these games and we're actually going to become, feel so much connection to the characters in games that we actually begin to feel for them and feel because of them, then we got to pay we got to pay real attention to what happens in these characters, uh, what happens to these characters in games, and um, how characters are represented in games. Mm-hmm. So, um, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, you I was should... just agreeing. I was just agreeing um so the the two of the things that is mr talks about is one that you know by design having games that ask us to make choices that um affect the narrative arc that affects you know what happens to characters um that affects just what happens in the game overall makes us feel culpable right so we start to feel um, we start to feel more because of uh, because of the choices that we make when we're actually playing the game mm-hmm. um and the the so she goes on two things choice and flow so she talks about game flow right being immersed in the game and hitting you we talk about it all the time when we hit we hit a sweet spot in games where we just feel kind of connected and it just kind of flows i mean a lot of us if you know we've we were talking earlier about like the old, the old school games that we have played. Think back to when you were playing like Super Mario Brothers or Galaga or Frogger or any of the games that had a very specific rhythm. But when you got into that rhythm and you got into kind of the game in such a way that it just flowed then you became, it, it sounds weird, right? It sounds all touchy-feely and crunchy granola, but you kind of become one with the game at that point. And when we start talking about games that are narrative-based um, and games that draw us into that narrative, when we hit that flow, right, then, then we become emotional, right? Um, and we become connected to the game. So then when you do that and then all of a sudden, say, for example, you know, people start, you know, not that you would necessarily hit that flow with Deus Ex, right, especially the new one, Um, but when things start happening that reflect what's going on in the real world, then you start to feel emotional about it or feel specific emotions um, about it and that's one of the one of the reasons that she talks specifically uh, in this book about why we have to pay attention to the way games are designed And it's not that you know games designed this way are a bad thing, but we have to pay attention to more than just the mechanics and hitting and hitting that being able to hit that sweet spot and having uh, people become immersed in their game, but having people immersed in games that are culturally aware as well. And
3: you know, I forgot to mention the other game that I played. Bianca and I played through Bound. Yes, Uh, yes, we did. did. We framed it. We streamed the whole thing. Um, We finished the whole game in one sitting, and I I was thinking about the book as I was playing that game because you do get really connected with trying to figure out what's going on, Mm -hmm. and that flow is taking taken away from you in a really jarring way. Yeah. At the end, I don't want to spoil it, but no spoilers. We were mad.
0: I was mad and I wasn't even playing it. Um, You
3: felt it like we were into it trying to figure out what was going on and the story and we were invested and everything was really interesting. But it's so easy for game makers, I think, to misstep because we don't privilege games as as an art form in the same way we privilege other forms of media.
0: Mm hmm. You know, and that's and that's I mean, it's interesting, right? Because, yeah, like you said, I, I felt it in the same way, but I'm sure not to the extent that you guys did. Oh, we were mad because you were you were physically playing the game. And that's one of the things that is Mr. looks at in the in the mm-hmm. book when she um, is she looks at studies that have been done where, you know, we we're talking about kind of neurology uh, is like hooking people up. Um so that you can read their brain waves. Uh, so they hooked two groups of people up. One people who were playing through the games and two people who were watching those people play games. Right? And while brain waves remained fairly steady in people who were just watching, when you were actually playing with the game and experiencing that level, that increased level of interactivity and and flow for lack of a better word, then their brainwaves changed significantly and it became more and they and they were patterned more after actually experiencing those things in real life right so when we start to think about I mean, we've been making that argument for years we were like yeah interactivity there is something different there is this deeper level of immersion when we're talking about experiencing a narrative that we are actually playing through versus reading a book or watching television Um. And so, to kind of see this discussed in such a way, and look and look at what what gets said uh, based upon that study is is really interesting. And I'd, I'd love to see more studies done uh, about physiological changes that happen um, when we're talking about uh, interactivity and immersion. So I know that's kind of geeky for a moment there. <laughs> What about you, Kishana? Are you playing anything? Does she come back? Her internet's still going? I don't know. I don't yeah. Or she might be chasing her kids through the house. All right. <laughs> <laughs> so let's get to the fun part. What are we drinking? Tommy, what you drinking, darling?
1: Um, Tonight, I'm drinking a Jameson Caskmates on the Rocks. It's a, it's a whiskey that's aged in stout barrels. Good. nice, Ooh. and um, I also have been kind of my my favorite session ale lately. It's like a hoppy session ale called Bitter American. And I think it's so appropriate, so I've been <laughs> drinking that <laughs>
0: Bitter American. That I like. All right, what about you, Alex Lane? What you drinking, darling?
2: Um, I have a Loon
0: Juice, which
2: is uh, one of our many Minnesota ciders. Uh, it's the Strawberry Shandy Loon Juice, mm-hmm. and it's very good. They make mint mojito. Mm-hmm. They have honey crisp. It's just legit. They're all in cans. It's very good. But again, like, this is one of our many, many ciders. Not, you know, the most amazing. I'd say Lionheart maybe is the most amazing Minnesota cider, but it's very good. And uh, tequila, a little tequila on the side. You know, you don't want to be too Cause, soft. Cause you're not playing, right? Yeah, I mean, you don't want to be too soft. I, I gotta stay hard. So <laughs> that's what I'm drinking. Next. All right, Alicia, what you, what you drinking, darling? I
3: am drinking a grapefruit vodka and uh, with a little little cranberry juice. Little because I'm classy as
0: fuck. Apparently, I don't know. You're drinking it out of a red solo cup.
3: No, I'm drinking out of a mason jar.
0: <laughs> As I do. <laughs> Don't hate. Well, fine. I am drinking a New Glarus, right? Uh raspberry tart. Mm, mm-hmm. I love this stuff. Mm-hmm. And I'm drinking New Glarus is rain. solid. Yeah. A fancy uh stemless wine glass, because I wanna tell myself that I'm not gonna drink this whole seven hundred fifty milliliter bottle tonight,
3: mhm, sure,
0: sure, yeah, yeah, I'm not okay, <laughs> so okay. and this is like my new favorite I think well, definitely my new favorite raspberry beer, maybe my new favorite fruit beer right now. I don't know. I gotta I gotta weigh those options, but I'm really loving this one right now. So yeah, New Glarus Raspberry Tart is what I'm drinking. So joy. All right, so we've gone through the usual: what you're playing, what you're reading, what you're drinking. Now let's get to some fun stuff. Let's get to talking to Tommy, so we can have a conversation. Um. It, it was fun. We should have recorded. Tommy and I had a long conversation last night. We should have recorded that conversation because that was a whole lot of fun too. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty good. Um, so I want I want to jump in because you know I, I I glossed over the introduction of you when we got started. But can you tell us you know a little bit about your military career because you know that would be the one where you were you know st- station state in a cushy office job because you know that's what women do.
1: <laughs> yeah, in the kitchen, barefoot. The- yeah. <laughs> um, sure. Yep. I I enlisted in 1999 in the National Guard. Um, I think what's noteworthy about the time is that it was before 9/11. So up to the cohort of soldiers who enlisted because they were inspired by 9/11. Mm-hmm. That that there's a lot of. Um, I think there are. A lot, I have a lot of peers who have a totally different attitude toward why they joined and their service than probably than I do. Um, I spent three years being a truck mechanic, which was really really fun. Um, uh, and I should note this is all. So it wasn't my full-time career. It was my National Guard career, and and yet it was a pretty immersive experience overall. I mean, it just changes it changed my sense of identity almost immediately and I was attached to um, a mechanized infantry company so when I joined it was like me, two other women and like a hundred dudes and um, here in Minnesota and uh, wow, I it was it was really intense and it was a it was, harassment doesn't begin to capture the general social tenor. I mean it was a it was a very male dominated male driven environment and um, mostly it was infantry soldiers and then a bunch of us who did services to support infantry soldiers and um, side note good context my brother and I joined within a couple of months of each other so we were both serving the same Mm -hmm. unit. Um, He and I have had some really great Back conversations now, where he was put. He's a feminist, and he was put in this position where he had to defend me to people who were cornering him in the locker, so that they could tell him stories that weren't locker room, so they could tell him stories that weren't true about his sister. I mean, it was really you know. Oh my god. Um. So then the uh, the mechanic side of things went on for a while, and then I went to officer school. And it, it was, an, again, a National Guard-based officer school, so it takes um, about 16 months to complete doing it in weekends and a few longer-term stints that are a week or two uh, at a time. And, and then I was, uh, and that commission as an officer then was as a military intelligence officer, so I had then had to go to a specializing school uh, in... In Arizona. I lived there for six years, and then um, about a little more than a year after I graduated from that program, I was in Iraq and then I deployed to Iraq for 12 months. And I went there with, again, guardsmen from Minnesota, but this time it was a bunch of people I hadn't been working with. I can say a little bit more. The deployment was really interesting because of this whole concept of combat and cushy office job and <laughs> the playing with all those field artillery guys was really interesting because they all wanted to blow shit up I mean that was their like they literally were like we want to go to Iraq and blow shit up yeah the way we were organized was more of a headquarters type unit and so like all of these really pretty high-ranking officers that I, I deployed with hi, high ranking officers and non-commissioned officers um, they all, most of them, let's see, there were only 27 of us, and about eight of us had jobs that didn't involve air conditioning and a building in the middle of the base. And I was one of those people. So there was tension all year long about why do I have the, com- the fancy combat job, and they're stuck in the air-conditioned office at their desk. Mm. <laughs>
0: it was really weird because they wanted to blow shit up. So they wanted yeah, to Yeah, and like
1: right, meanwhile like my third day on the job, there was the biggest car bomb we saw all year. I mean, it was just there was stuff happening that was really traumatic and it was a really strange environment to be, you know, villainized by these guys for and job. Yeah. And I pro- I probably didn't help things though cuz once I got comfortable with myself and the work I was doing, I just um like they my senior officers would come and visit every few weeks and um, they'd show up and seriously, they had just pulled their body armor out of a plastic bag to put it on because it was required at my point, but not where they usually work. So they really stood out because the rest of us, we were dirty, like smudged with dust and dirt and we were sweaty and it was gross. And, and they'd show up and they look like they'd just come from the dry cleaners, you know, (laughs) I'd be like, "Hey, sir, how's that body armor allergy treating you?" <laughs> <laughs>
0: Jeez.
1: So I, I mean, I maybe, I played into it a little bit, but at the same time, I would just, I was resigned to the fact that they would probably villainize me regardless. So I might as well just be myself.
3: You know, um, I had a friend who, and this was several years later, but he was in Afghanistan. And, uh, and gosh, somewhere else. Oh, he was in Kosovo and then Afghanistan. And then he went back to Afghanistan as a mercenary. Um, but he was also in the guard. And he, where he happened to be stationed, it, they were just waiting. But they could hear things around, like they would hear shelling and mortars or whatever. Um, so he talked a lot about – he didn't have the language to describe it as you do. But he talked about the tension of waiting. And not really having anything direct to do. But knowing stuff was happening. Yeah. And how much that affected everybody. Yeah. Um, and, and the attitudes and stuff. And gosh I wonder. You know if the people who were stuck in the buildings. And I don't mean to make excuses for anybody certainly. But uh, you know you, you get sent over there. And you think you're going to get to do something. And, and then you're stuck in a building. And then you're already. You already have this tension. Because there's a woman. And how dare there be a woman. <laughs> um, but then you add to that. This, this waiting and sitting. It just seems like a recipe for disaster. Yeah, it was pretty rough. <laughs> you would think people would figure that out after a while. Like, maybe we shouldn't do this.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Find a Better way. Wait. Wait. That's. I think that's a whole other conversation about the military-industrial complex <laughs> and like what what motivates it and who subsidizes it.
0: We can save that one <laughs> next time. We'll save <laughs> we'll <be> that <battle> for <laughs> another conversation. So, kind of piggybacking off of that, and, and to tie this into games, right? Um, so, in the, the, the recent Metal Gear Solid Five game, so we're, we're mm-hmm. exposed to... Um, exposed is a good word. Exposed is an excellent word, right? To, to one of the prominent female characters uh, in, in games. Fr- prominent female soldiers, shall we say, in video games, more specifically. Right? Um, so, we get quiet. So quiet, you know, of course, for those listening, is a mute sniper who, because of genetic enhancement, breathes and drinks through her skin. So she's got to wear this bikini top and fishnets, right, in order to stay alive because she's got to breathe in. You know, she's got to you know, the wonderful shower scene so that she can actually drink. So what do you think depictions like this say to people about women working in the military?
1: Um, I... I think the word that comes to mind is dangerous. Like it's just simply dangerous to to women, above all else, to put us to depict us in a way where um, the image is set, and then in real life or in games, we have to opt out. We have to choose actions that demonstrate that we're like real humans mm-hmm. and that we're on equal footing. Uh. Oh. I'm
3: sorry, can we just talk about, I just, I don't know, in like moment of silence, we have to demonstrate that we're real humans. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: Yep, and I I think that, um, you know... Sam brought up a great point when we were chatting yesterday about um the inconsistencies. so I, f- I forgot his name but that there's a male character who has the same condition and of course yeah. doesn't have the same constraints with his costuming and and the workaround for being able to deal with his condition of needing to breathe through his skin is a completely different workaround than it mm-hmm. is for quiet like those are huge messages about inequality and inequality being okay
0: yeah, cause he's not running so around in fishnet hose in a bikini top, right? <laughs>
1: and and I I think this is a good moment too to talk about like empowerment of women. Like if if Quiet was choosing, like you know, I mean, if you were given your whole wardrobe and you were choosing your gear that helped you breathe through your skin, and it, that was one of the options, I would have less problem with it. But it's designed into the game. That's <laughs> yeah, really it's not the only okay. thing. That, And
3: it's not just that it's, you know, skimpy. It's also, can you just take a second to imagine wearing fishnets in a sandy environment? I know, it's disgusting. (laughs) It's (laughs) the worst
0: thing ever.
1: The person who designed that has probably never worn fishnets.
0: (laughs) Or had sand in their swimsuit at at the beach. Right. Right. (laughs) Because, you know. Yeah. So... Yeah, well, I'm sure we're gonna come back and we're gonna talk come back and talk about some stuff that that comes from that too. But but I want to jump for a second because, like I said, you you were blogging um, while you were deployed, and then a little bit after, um, and and it was it was amazing. Um, I read your stuff on the regular then, right? So, but. Um your blog kind of juggles a lot of emotions from despair to joy to depression to gratefulness and 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 everything in between um It's really personal, but it's, it's definitely relatable um, it gives people a good insight right um into who you are as a person, but on your blog, you talk about lurkers right um you talk about lurkers in particular um and you ask them encourage them demand from them right that they make themselves known um why what is it about the lurkers that made you say you know what we we need we need to we need to hear from them right um yeah because i mean it, it's interesting i mean i i i have ideas in my head but tell us about it
1: i i think it was definitely context driven for me i was reaching out and wanting to connect with people and i got the sense that there were many more people passing through and reading the blog than were stopping to say anything to me mm-hmm. in comments or you know i mean comments would have been the main vehicle for that um so on the one side it's like Getting some equity with my readers like there's a desire as a blogger to get some equity from like all this outpouring of My person onto the page and then wanting the people who pass through and consume that to acknowledge that they're consuming it And I I hope benefiting from it.
0: Yeah
1: Um, it I Think let's see I mean it didn't work. <laughs> Asking them to engage in the way that I did, there was a post where I basically said, won't you comment, won't you, you know, say something? Um, it wasn't a complete failure. I think there were one or two people who who popped in, but they were people I was accustomed to hearing from. Yeah. So I think I, I thought more about this in in preparation for this discussion. I think um, my work today, my professional work has taught me about different learning styles and the way people prefer to be engaged. And certainly in the gaming world, there's a lot of examples of that, like the different ways, like whether someone is going to be talking while they're playing the game or not, and you know, like just how, how the person put themselves out there. Yeah. Um, I've revised my view of, Lurkers engaged, that's only okay if I provide some options for people to engage. So, you know, it requires clicks where they don't have to compose a thought and put it in a comment box. That might be one way, something like that.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, because what you were putting out there when you were writing was like real, it was personal, it was raw at moments. I mean, I'm not going to hold you up. I cried a whole lot when you were deployed because I, because of what you were writing, right? Because I mean, I felt for you and felt a, a, felt a connection to you through what you were writing. So it was like, yeah. So I can I completely understand. It was like you were putting a lot of your heart and dare I say your soul into what you were writing, and yeah, and it was there, right? And I was like. She's scared, and I feel that fear for her. Yeah. So I mean, I was so yeah. I'm like down for calling people out. It's like, nope, you're not. Gonna, <laughs> you're not going to stay here. And I understand what you're saying too, but at the same time, it kind of feels like I I don't want you to sit here and act as a voyeur to this kind yeah. of emotion. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Alicia, why don't you jump in and, and uh, take this next question for me, darling? Um, sure. So, uh.
3: Many of the veterans that we know, as a collective, uh, tend to play first-person shooters. Uh, more realistic, the better. Or they can't be around it when people play first-person shooters. Yeah. Yep. What can you say about
1: those tendencies? Where they come from? What causes them? Um, I think it's an accurate description. From my perspective too um i i really understand that perspective of people so the p pe- i'm gonna talk first um well i can locate myself on the continuum i'm closer to the can't be in the room end of the continuum than the can't get enough and mm-hmm. um but with some kind of exceptions along the way i've dabbled but um I, I really sympathize with the compulsion of veterans who are now home playing the games, consuming that first-person shooter perspective uh, in a really hyper-stimulating, hyper-violent um, environment. and. I, I actually think it reflects a couple different perspectives. One of them is people who were seeing active combat on a regular basis while they were deployed. So they're out on patrols, they're getting shot at, they're shooting at um, um, insurgents and there may or may not be collateral damage. There may be collateral damage that wasn't from, from us, from friendly. Um, So, you know, it's a very complex environment and it's Almost impossible to make sense of it if you're not someone who's like actively working on self-awareness and healing. It's really, really difficult to to just like unpack all of that and find some new zen, you know, after you've been deployed in a combat environment. Uh, I, I also want to acknowledge the folks we mentioned earlier in the conversation, the people who are kind of stuck someplace, working through. A daily survivor guilt like survivor guilt just after we come home it was it was a daily thing um, in the zone where there there's really important work going on inside the base and there were people who literally never left the base and there's some polarizing socially between the people who are going out on the road every day and the people who are like making sure all the nuts and bolts inside the base are working And those folks who didn't actually see um, face-to-face combat, it's really tough to even put it in categories or buckets, but the folks that weren't, like, pointing their weapon out of a vehicle window or, like, going down the road or dealing with that kind of um, exchange, they're still dealing with some level of um, missing stimulus and and I think first person shooter games give us like a really it's a low hanging fruit it's a really easy environment to find immediate immersion that feels mm-hmm. familiar, and like like the fish that was out of water getting back in the pond it just um, it's it's re- realistic enough to bring back that stimulation and make things feel normal again.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh I mean, and t- and see Tommy and I have a, everybody at a disadvantage because she and I had this long conversation last night, and we talked about this because um, you know while I have not been in the military or seen active combat, for, for me, I, I lost um, a family member, a very close family member to gun violence a little over 20 years ago. Um, and it's been real recent. Um, probably 10 years or less um, s- since I've actually been able to play shooters again I couldn't play shooters for a long time if anything even looked like a shooter I didn't want to play it um, and I don't I still don't play um, military shooters for the most part um, the closest thing I mean <coughs> excuse me the closest thing I'll play is I'll play Destiny um, I'll play uh, I'll play things like um, overwatch from time to time but things that feel up close and personal um, i I can't play even today um, and I can't watch um, films that have uh, up close and personal uh, violence in them I can't watch I can't watch military films at all um, yeah because because of the guns. Um. So it it is, and it's interesting because you know these things. I mean, for for me, even being that I don't want to say that far removed because it's not, but not be, not experiencing it firsthand. I So I cannot imagine, right, what it's like to have experienced it firsthand and to find yourself in that in that situation, but it, it makes perfect sense that you either need to be back in that headspace and you use mm-hmm. the games to get there or you want nothing to do with it whatsoever.
1: Yeah, I have one more thing to add. I think it's occurring to me that there is a helplessness that happens when you're um, in a combat zone getting shot at or receiving. So um, we were talking re- earlier about mortars and rockets like hearing what's going on nearby and one of the things that was happening pretty frequently on the base where I was deployed was mortars and rockets were hitting fairly random points on the base so there was still a feeling of helplessness among all 20,000 people on this base like yeah. it could be me I might get hit I could it could hit the place where I'm sleeping yeah um, it could hit me while well, I'm just doing my job um, and I think there's a little bit of a an aftershock, like a wave that happens afterwards that's um an maybe an overcorrection where mm-hmm. we want to take control. Being the first-person shooter, even if you weren't someone who had that role when you were deployed, help might help a, a veteran feel like they're taking back some control that they didn't have.
3: Makes sense. Yeah. Oh, goodness. This is emotional. (laughs) So here's, here's one that's a little, a little bit lighter fair. So in your work, you talk a lot about the idea of home, right? Uh, There's home and there's a way. What happens when you come home, uh, how you feel, the good things, the bad things, but where is your home now? and, And how are you feeling about this idea of home now?
1: I love this question. I think it's um, really insightful. And um, I hadn't noticed, I think what's really cool is I hadn't noticed this about myself and my blog content until it was pointed out by you all in your um, prep for this session, for this <laughs> um, podcast. I like really didn't notice that home was such a recurring theme. And then I went back and looked at my blog and I was like, wow, it really is. It's all over the place. I, I read. Uh, unlike
3: Sam, I, I I really I do a lot of military stuff. I, I considered for a while going to American Studies to study combat narratives. I think it, it's actually very common. Okay. Um, which I is something that I find deeply interesting, but I think also a lot of authors like you don't see it in themselves, which is adds a whole another dimension. I'm sorry. Go ahead.
1: Yeah. So, um, I think. So home for me now like geographically I there's there was this transition where I actually was very transient and I'm from Minnesota but I moved all over the place. When I came home my immediate family, all adults had kind of been dispersing themselves geographically and that's actually how I met Sam was that I followed my mom to her doctoral program at Purdue. <laughs> and then met Sam through them being colleagues in the same department. And, um, well, well, I shouldn't say colleagues. Um, my mom was a graduate student and Sam was a professor when I was there. And, um, and I didn't feel at home anywhere. It, it was a great sense of loss and it was really tough to capture. And there was a really slow grind of, healing from trauma. It, it took me a long time to admit to myself that the deployment had been traumatic.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, that may be surprising to some of you, but it really, I think in a lot of ways, I I just, I was quick to understate the difficulty after I, especially after I left, I was quick to understate the difficulty of what I had been through. And um, it took me a very slow, many years process to come to the sense of being home um, in myself like enjoying my own company and actually wanting to put down roots so now home is in Minnesota I live in the Twin Cities and and uh, my partner and I bought a house we just passed the one year mark of having bought a house together like it really feels like home I have a yard it's mine that feels so good and it was it's been a long time since I was anywhere near that that feeling mm.
3: I have a question that's not on our list now based on what you just said uh sure because it it sounded really interesting um you said it took took you a long time to kind of come to terms the fact that this had been damaging to you that it was traumatic I, i think that that may also be somewhat common but i would expect and this is my assumption please tell me if i'm very wrong that a lot of the resources and literature that have been designed about that kind of attitude are probably geared toward men but your deployment would have been very different because of the things that you said. You had to harden yourself against some different things. Yeah. So yeah. dealing with that and the fallout of that would have been completely different than it would have been for a man yes. in the same position.
1: Yep, and, and I that absolutely resonates with me. Um, I can't how much I think um, female veterans are isolated still, like, women who were deployed at the same time I was deployed, women who were deployed in Desert Storm in the early 90s, like, we still feel isolated and distant from the general messaging about veterans. Yeah. I think there are probably, uh, I always get the sense that there are some good resources out there, but if they're not obvious to me, then maybe... (laughs) Um, maybe they're they're not as abundant as I'm dreaming them to be. <laughs> <laughs> I confess I haven't gone looking for anything, and there's um there's something that is common to all veterans, regardless of um generally, regardless of demographics. Uh, and it's that self-reliance thing, and the fact that there's a dichotomy there's well, there's a paradox. so we were trained to be survivors. We were trained to be um strong and combative and um, um, overcoming of adversity and and that means that when we come home we have been good soldiers it's really really hard to convince us that we that there's any circumstance where we should crumble and need help ask for help like show we and and that's common for men and women. Um, but I think that this is where intersectionality becomes really interesting because women, <laughs> we have been doing that for millennia. Like, <laughs> we are the, right. <laughs> we're, we're the ones who are Look like, I mean, right I'm fine. I don't. I'm not sick.
0: <laughs> pneumonia. Yeah,
1: I'm like figuring out how to work three jobs and take care of my. I, I do not have children. I'm 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 setting myself up as a trope here. But like, I'm figuring out how to work multiple occupations, paid and unpaid, I'm figuring out how to work through the complexities of interpersonal um, dynamics, and I'm bearing all the emotional labor of any man who's only one degree of separation from me who thinks I should do that for him. Yeah. And like, <laughs> I'm, that's a lot. <laughs> uh, so female veterans, coming back to this trauma thing, I think are even more so um, very, very unlikely to recognize any kind of need in ourselves that isn't just part and parcel with living our lives
0: mm-hmm.
1: so it's tough- it's tough to i think bring us together and and find some benefit from that
3: it's just it seems that there's just nothing easy about being a soldier in America. And there's really nothing easy about being a female, female soldier,
0: soldier in America. <laughs> so, okay, I, I, I'm, I'm trying to think of a way to encapsulate this question, uh, because I think it's interesting and, and it, it really piggybacks off of what you, you've been talking about in terms um, in terms of learning to deal with things and, and processing the fact that trauma exists when you come home. Um, but to take it back to the time that you were de- deployed, right? And thinking about um, the role of women in the military during active deployment, thinking about the things that women had to p- have to put up with um, while in the military, right? Including um, being harassed, including um, you know being the being the butt of jokes, and, and people finding it problematic that you got to do the dude's job. Right While they had to sit in a bunker elsewhere um on the base, right, yeah. and so we get to this this big question right i mean you you one of the things you did of course was to write, but how did you get through this right <laughs> um <laughs> and and obviously you've 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 thought through it now and you think through it now um but what what helped you
2: sure.
1: Um, I, I'm gonna start small and then I have a couple of things <laughs> that come to mind to answer this question so one of them and I, I share this now tongue-in-cheek uh, especially with junior female colleagues where I'm like it's really okay to call people on their bullshit by just asking them to explicate what just happened and just keep asking questions until their whole argument like shows itself for being biased and rude. <laughs> <laughs> um, so i that's my professional version of what I learned how to do when I was 25 in a combat zone with a bunch of 18 year old infantry guys. Um, there was in my immediate office, uh, I worked at the main gate. I had three American soldiers and two Iraqi interpreters reporting to me was to run the access control program for the whole base. And I mentioned previously that there's 20,000 people on this base. So roughly speaking, it's how do people, goods, and vehicles get in and out of the base and into the intermediate access points inside of the perimeter. And, and so our day-to-day job, we did one-on-one interviews with you know, anywhere from 40 to 80 Iraqi workers um, on a daily basis. And we consulted then on the validity of like a national ID that someone would use with their base pass that we created for them to, were their credentials valid, things like that. Um, so a lot of times, like in between activities, things would slow down in the late afternoon or in the kind of like in the middle of the afternoon after everyone had come in and before people started leaving. And um, these junior soldiers would just, like, stand around and make all these terrible jokes. Like, yeah. they, somebody wanted to tell some story about sexual exploitation or some story about, you know, just all kinds of euphemisms, thinly veiled or not, about... Um, a lot of sex and objectifying women and things like that. And and so often I'd be standing like four or five feet from this conversation going on between these two soldiers and I'd insert myself and say, I don't understand what that term is that you just used. Could you explain it to me? And I would get really close to them and basically be like, you mentioned the term red wings and like, can you explain to me what that is? And these guys they would turn, like, 50 shades of red and shut up. <laughs> and I did not back down. <laughs> um, so those kinds of things were were helpful to me. And, like, I learned these tools where I was just like, you know, no, I'm going to get in these guys' face because I'm the only woman here. And, I, oh, and I should mention, I was always the highest or second highest ranking person on that point. So they ran 24 hour ops. We do unquote quote banker hours. I worked 14 hour days, but our office was open for, from like eight to five. And, um, and the guys running the 24 hour ops were doing, you know, eight hour shifts across the 24 hour continuum. Like, and they, they were the ones who were like acting like complete morons. And I was just, you know that was my coping mechanism with that. Um, I should also say I really, you know, I I was inconsistent. I I was um trying to find my way, and and so some things I did were all aesthetics and what I did to surround myself. So on leave, I I purchased art from local artists in, in the Bemidji area, northern Minnesota, and like. You know where you like buy the $300 painting. Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) I did that (laughs) To myself in Iraq and put it up in my room and I was just like my my room was very well organized that I had a little coffee maker and um, I made arrangements with a contractor to bring me fresh flowers once a week and (laughs) I was just trying really hard to keep my surroundings inside my little living space civilized. Um, I did my makeup every day, like it was gross in that environment where I worked. It was dirty and hot, Our it most of the time I was there around throughout the year, even at night, I was just not used to it, not even dipping below like 95 to 97 at night. Jeez. And, and then rain, right, so then like our daytime temperatures were always, 110 plus and it, it that's a lot it's a lot to deal with especially with all the body armor and the extra weapons and all that gear um another I mentioned this to Sam so last night so I need to bring it up again here I I my one of my biggest coping mes- mechanisms was that I had a deployment boyfriend and <laughs> that was <laughs> maybe not a great idea <laughs> Um, we, I mean, it was, it was against policy in so many ways. It wasn't one of the, he wasn't one of the people who reported directly to me, but it's just messy to hook up with people you work with. And we, he was in another office, but we collaborated almost daily. It was really. I thought it was really good for me while I was there and then it was like coming out of wonderland coming back to the US nothing I came home so I re- when I was in in my deployment I believed this was a long-term thing and when I came home it only took a couple months for it to completely crumble mm. into what I'm thinking yeah um I think I think the last thing to say is I connected with people whenever I could, and and the places where I found great connections, um, like the human connection, were mostly with um, local Iraqi people. So there was there was a little cadre of village teenage boys who ran around all the time in our point, and they were there all the time just informally translating. Nobody was paying them. They were just coming back and forth. I mean, people were probably paying them to run errands, like cash in hand, right? Um, but they were fun. They were fun to talk to, and and those relationships really blossomed to the point where if something unusual happened, we could ask them to help us translate or run errands or, um, you know, make that, make that human connection.
0: Mm-hmm. I, I you know that, and I think that's the that's the thing, right? Is is human connection, right? I mean, you 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 say um, that you know there were there were the the teenage boys that you know you had a deployment boyfriend, you know. And the thing is, is that yeah, that's that's part of the really fucked up part about war is that you're almost being asked constantly not to make those kinds of connections, Absolutely. right? To stay disconnected. Yep. So it it makes perfect sense that you do things to maintain some kind of human connection because you know what, guess what, we're humans. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we want that kind of connection. We need that kind of connection just to stay not only human, but to stay humane.
1: Oh, I should mention this because it's fun trivia. In hindsight, um, I realized I actually went back and tabulated what my big budget items were because, you know, you're, people wonder this. Your food and your housing and your clothing are all being paid for. So what do you spend money? <laughs> also wanna wanna put it in perspective for you all because it's real common knowledge, what's sold and we all think, oh, you're getting combat pay, you're getting hazard pay, whatever. So for the twelve months I was deployed, I made forty-five thousand dollars just to like put it in perspective. Um <laughs> I think my life is worth more than that. <laughs> But yeah. but I look looking back on it, I spent a lot of money on a few categories of things that are all like extras and now looking back on it. I spent money on gambling, which was against <laughs> the rules. But also very common from what I hear. Cigarettes and coffee. <laughs> <laughs> yes, so, like, and I, we had a little, like, Seattle's Best Coffee stand that made, like, latte, like, espresso-based
0: drinks. So, um, it, that's kind of amusing, though, that, that you, well, one... It's amusing that, you know, you calculated that and found out that you spent a lot on things like cigarettes and coffee. I don't even want to calculate how much I spend on coffee on a regular. But just the thought that for um, being deployed uh, in a hazardous area (laughs) where you are um, positioned at the gate, right, which is point of contact and conflict, that you make 45 grand. I know. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) I, yeah.
1: That's real life.
0: (laughs) That's that's real life, wow. (laughs) Yeah, no. No.
1: I did luck out, I I keep thinking about this coping question. I did luck out, um, high visibility job and especially as a female. So I had this of attention and awareness by people I didn't know should know who I am. So I was on like name basis with commander, like the highest ranking officer on the base would just call me up and be like, what's going on with blah, blah, blah. But similarly, all the contractors who were trying to get laborers in through the gate, um, it was the Iraqi, it was the desert version of, of, uh, not Iraqi version, Iraq deployment version of mining, right? Like people were trying to get my attention. And it was very confusing about whether they were doing that because I was female or because I had a position where I was screening their workers for access to keep their contracts going through on time. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, I'm i not gonna lie, like I, there's no playbook for that. Like people were inviting me to barbecues, I was drinking alcohol. Alcohol was completely banned. And I was drinking alcohol every day for the first two months I was deployed. Um, And then one day, I just woke up and kind of went, "Okay, uh, this is a roulette game, and I am not going to make it 12 months of drinking all the time without getting caught, so I'm going to stop now. And, um, and I did I stopped cold, you know cold turkey. it wasn't a drinking problem. It was a drinking habit to cope with my environment, you know, and um, yeah, in that in that whole process, it's it was like I was coping by connecting with people and quote, you know, like going to parties is a really strong way of putting it
0: i you know i think it's i think it's interesting i mean because we, we do develop these kinds of coping mechanisms and 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 coping mechanisms are just that right they're things that we do in order to survive so you know i mean we all have them mm-hmm.
3: it, especially right. those who was in grad school
0: <laughs> yeah, <right>. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we do we all have i mean in, in in whatever in whatever walk of life we're in we all have them i mean and I I think they're a good thing, um, as as long as they're not you know destructive, you know, as long as they're not destructive, as long, as long as our coping mechanism is not driving around and and shooting pedestrians right out of a car window, right? Yeah. I think that coping mechanisms are a good thing because they allow us to do the things that we need to do. Yep. So I'm yeah. completely in favor. Of that was
1: yeah, I mean, sometimes
3: you you do have to make choices, right, which is what you were talking about, like okay, you were drinking as a coping mechanism, but you you can't only cope through drinking,, nope. which is is something that people and and i don't I don't want to compare what you went through to other high stress situations, but when people are um, in high stress okay, situations. Uh, Well, you know, I don't, there are differences obviously, but in a variety of high stress situations, like people develop these mechanisms. My friend who was deployed multiple times and then went back, like his wife is a nurse and well, she's an administrator now, but she was a nurse in a pediatric cancer unit. Oh man.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So yeah,
3: yeah. So she had a lot of coping mechanisms when she was on the ground doing that stuff because you can't go through that every day Mm -mm. and not have some outlet. But you do have to, to weigh those things like, okay, so I'm getting this out of that, but where is it also hurting me? And it becomes this like, chain of things that are maybe not so good for you so especially in the case of of the military if there's not the resources to make up for that what are people supposed to do
1: yeah i and i think that's just an ongoing open question and and unfortunately um you know the american public is is i, I think it's the big battle in a long time that in 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 reducing our relationship with veterans to a thank you message and a couple of key dates per year where, like, everybody has to shut up and, like, stand for the national anthem and shit. In (laughs) doing that, we, like, check the box publicly and say, see, we're thanking the veterans. Like, we're fine. They're fine.
0: We've done what we were supposed to do.
1: Yeah. Thank you for your service. Oh, my God. And it's so it's heartbreaking it's not just it's like incredible i i i've gone through so much where i realized i have a lot of resources like i have above average resources for the typical veteran the person who's signed up for the service and gone through all of this and um has absolutely brought me to my knees. It has taken every resource I have and more, and it doesn't stop. And when you multiply that, the veterans we have in the United States, it's phenomenal. Like that impact is really huge. So this is a heavy conversation. <laughs>
3: <laughs> it is. Around this time, at, at almost every podcast, I this is the conversation we have, we're like, damn. We're just, everything is terrible. <laughs> so, you know what, Sam? Maybe it's us.
0: <laughs> We're the common denominator there.
3: <laughs> Shit. <laughs> well, but I mean, okay. I think that, I'm sorry, Sam. Oh, I don't go ahead. Except I'm going to do it. Uh, we make light of it. But I mean, the reality is that as much as we like to pretend, like you just said, We're here for the veterans. Women really are equal. We don't need feminism. (laughs) We're in a post-racial society. Like, when you really explore explore these issues, like, things are fucking terrible for everyone.
2: (laughs) Uh
0: Everything is awful is the podcast theme song. It should be so yeah. tell me i'm gonna I'm gonna throw this out there because this is one question I always throw out there and i and I unlike most most people, I actually warned you this one was a comment, is that um so at the end i i once we right. we've kind of gone through all the kinds of things that we wanted to talk about or scripted to talk about, excuse me, I ask people specifically, so is there anything? Mm-hmm that we didn't ask you that you would have said, damn, I wish they would have asked this. Or is there anything that you wanted to talk about that you didn't get to talk about? Um, And and so you want to take that opportunity now?
1: Um, I wanted to say one thing about how I got through recovery after the deployment, and I think I just, it was dumb luck, but it was the right move. I had saved some of that money that I made while I was deployed. I had sent some home. I mean, you know, I just kind of, I didn't know what I was doing. But I had some money in the bank. And when I came home, I made this commitment that I was just not going to work for a while. I was just going to road trip. And I didn't do anything crazy. Like, I didn't go see all the national parks or, you know, go on my healing journey in the hills. I, I went and found all the people who had been sending me letters or praying for me who like had told my parents, you know, and and most of these folks are like immediate family members. So it was like a special grandparent, a special like grandma-like person who had been in my life early on. There were a couple of those. And I just like, Got in my car and drove around and and these were, we're talking hundreds and sometimes thousands of miles and just bounced around and went and visited people and spent a few days here and a few days there and just let myself relax. Like that was the entire visit would just be, let me go see you. Let me see your face. Let me hug you. Let me tell you about how much it meant to me that I was in that environment and you were holding me up. And man, that was probably one of the smartest things that I have ever done. Um, It just really paid dividends and probably on both sides, I mean, to to make these connections.
0: Yeah.
1: And um, I think it's a pretty good high note to end on. It's like, you know, talk about coping mechanisms. There were some really beautiful things that happened with people. And Sam, you're one of these people like, People were thinking of me on a regular basis and kind of sending these good well wishes into the universe in my direction, and um, and it it made a huge difference. And I I did a I made my best flawed attempt to reconnect with folks stateside and say it it mattered. It made a huge difference to me, and to my survival, to the fact that like my spirit actually came through that and that I'm still here. Um, not just my body, and um, yeah, I think, and then the other, the other thing that I just keep thinking of that I haven't mentioned is that one of those fancy contractor connections slipped me a phone, and I have no idea how this all worked out, but apparently before I got there, the, the government was in the business of actually buying cell phones that had prepaid SIM cards on them, and letting like, and there was a code you enter and the code was like built back somewhere into the ether. I have no idea where this went. <laughs> you, you enter a special code and it wasn't really a, I mean, it wasn't a sat phone. It was an international cell phone. <laughs> and you enter the code and then you enter the number and poof, you're like connected to stateside. And I cannot tell you, I cannot put a dollar value on the fact that someone gave me one of those phones and I walked around with that thing in my pocket and I could call my mom and what it was like to try to get on the phone and call your family otherwise was daunting. Like, you, you know, there were set hours, there were certain phones in certain offices you had to use, it might involve some sort of line, it almost certainly involved a time limit. Um, it made a huge difference that I could reach back to um, my mom, my family especially in general, but my mom was the one I called. And we made a pact at the beginning and just said, you know, I said, I'm pretty sure that this, that I'm going to get in the shit. Like, this is going to be rough. So you got to tell me right now, do you want the clean version of what's happening or do you want, like, the real version? <laughs> and she said, I want the real version. And I was like, I'm serious. You can change your mind at any time, but I'm probably <laughs> not going to keep asking you. She's like, okay, I get it. And I'm like, I called her when we were getting like mortars were hitting us, and I'm like, I probably have to leave my room now. I need to go to the bunker, you know. I mean, there's like just random shit going on, and I was able to connect back home. That, that's just huge. Yeah. So, um, I think the other thing is, just uh, I keep looking for opportunities to lend my efforts to ways to um, empower women, and and um get involved with nonprofit efforts to try to try to keep reclaiming the gap, the gender gap, the culture gap. And um gaps plural. <laughs> um, so this is a nugget that's kind of unrelated, but it, it's important to me. I read a report recently about um the average commute. Um, it, The headline is, we've been doing transit studies wrong all this time, and the punchline is um, when you average all the trips together, you're basically privileging male commuter trips, and when you separate them by gender, you get two very different pictures, and if we want to serve female commuters, we actually have to look at them separately. So I've gotten really excited about that as a cyclist and, and someone who lives in suburbia and trying to figure out, like, how can we um, empower people to use alternate modes of transportation, like, for, you know, in a way that serves them. And, and we're the ones running around, like, taking kids to daycare and, like, doing the grocery runs and, like, picking up the dry cleaning and... And maybe maybe choosing to live closer to where we work and some other things like that, which all of that drives down our average trip length um, over our male counterparts so it's it's been a fascinating side um research project for
0: me. That sounds amazing i don't I don't know, yeah you're you like breaking my heart here. <laughs> it's like it's I was process, but um, okay.
3: But there's good things too, right? Yes, because yes. there's the power of stories and what it can mean to tell these stories. You know, and 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 what it can do to change the very situations
0: that we're talking about, and not so. have me be a weepy mess on every podcast. Apparently,
3: right? Yay! <laughs> <laughs>
0: I think it's age. I think it's age. I'm gonna swear it's age is just doing it to me that I, I'm just turning, um, or I'm just like fucking angry all the time. But I think what, what you, the, all, everything that you're saying is really important. And as you were talking through like the things that you did when you got back from being deployed in terms of kind of being able to reconnect with people. This is not an opportunity. It is an opportunity for us to plug our next gaming for good um, right. event. But the stop soldier suicide organization, this is one of the very things that they talk about, right. In terms of, um, getting soldiers to reconnect in that two year period kind of post, um, Post military service, post deployment, um, you know, having having them not only reconnect with people, but reconnect with others or stay connected to other soldiers, right? People that can understand where they're coming from, what they're going through, and so on, right? And, and I think the the fact that they specifically talk about doing these things, um, but still providing resources when necessary of the mental health variety um is one of the things that that i think is important to focus on right because we always think okay so so people are suicidal or they're depressed let's get them let's get them medicated let's get them uh, mm-hmm. let's let's get them uh, some kind of mental health uh, care period right yep. and when we're talking about situations that fall outside of the norm right? Like being deployed, like being in a circumstance where your life is in danger every fucking day. You know what? Maybe we need to try something different. Right. Um, which was one of the reasons that that organization in particular kind of appealed to me so much. Um, so for those folks listening, um, yeah, definitely as we, as we get ready in a couple of weeks to go into, uh, to do our our gaming for good event, you know, save that money from that from that last latte and <laughs> and donate it to a good cause. Um, Absolutely, you here, here. Yeah,
1: I yeah. I mean, it's it's about resilience and well being. I mean, you know, we're really trying to shift this model of mental health and stigma toward holistic well being. Yeah, um, emotional and social well being, and and finally connecting the fact that, that social connectivity can be the medicine, right? For this sense of isolation and despair. So yeah, no, it's really good work. I'm excited that you're um, sending your efforts and funds in that direction.
0: We try to do good things.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's what balances all of
3: our assholey criticism, right? Well, you're
0: absolutely crazy. We're,
3: we're such assholes who hate everything. <laughs> Fucking SJWs who want to take all the Vigi games.
1: That's probably why I felt so at home on this, on this
3: <laughs> podcast. <laughs> Welcome home, Tommy.
1: Thank you. This is where you live now. Yeah, let me I answer to the home question? <laughs> right now, right now, I feel at home here on this podcast. Yay. <laughs>
0: Oh, we're your people. We're your people.
1: Yes. Yeah. Yay. Oh, so great.
0: That was great. Thank you so much for joining us. And thank you for sharing your stories. Not you know, not only sharing your story now, but sharing your stories with me ten years ago, right? Um, I can't believe it's been 10 years I know it's really been it's actually you want to you know it's
1: been 11
0: it's been 11 the, yeah because it was 2005 the,
1: of my blogging yep wild yeah so my pleasure I'm glad you're a reader and I I love that it just keeps um, connecting with people this long after the fact
0: and that you know we're still in touch, which means a lot.
3: <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> Yay. So see, we can end on a high note. We, we can end on a high note. I'm over here sniffling. <laughs> um, damn it. Um I have no heart. It's a little black lump mm, of coal that sits blah, in. Blah my chest. blah blah blah. <laughs> um so I guess on that note, that will bring us to the end of episode one hundred and thirty-six. Um, So until next time when we have episode 137 and we talk about other joyful things, um, make sure that everyone, let me just say, stay safe, stay connected, and as always, my friends, game on. (laughs) Woohoo!